Hey folks, Katie here. I'm the host of the podcast Blocked and Reported, along with my assistant, Jesse Single. And what you're about to hear is a preview of our latest premium episode. This is a fun one. It's about the world of disability activism, or online disability activism, I should say. Jesse interests us to some new terms. Cripple punk, merd. Merds are apparently the turfs of the cripple punk community. You're going to need to update your vocabulary list after this. To listen to the entire episode, you can join us at blockedandreported.org, where for just $5 a month, you get three extra episodes of this show every month. Primos are the reason we can keep doing this show. So if you want to support the show, please join us, blockedandreported.org. Today is a strange and random subject. What do you know about disability rights culture online? Oh my gosh. Uh, it's crazy. Can I say that? Can I use the, is that the C word? Uh, disability. That's a little ableist. Yeah, ableist. Disability rights culture online. It's much like fact act- activism culture. It's much like trans act. It's very online and it can get very, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like maybe focused on the small details fo- or focused on like microaggressions instead of macro issues, systemic issues. It almost sounds like you're suggesting that the people who spend the most time online aren't representative of the broader community they claim to speak for. Am I am I putting words in your mouth? I mean, I would never go on the record and say that, but yes. <laughs> okay. This so, is not the record. So that's what you know about the online disability rights movement. What do you know about cripple punk? Nothing. Are we allowed to use that term? Well, we're going to. That's the name of the thing, although that's one of the... the things that are at issue here is whether we can use that that term. Um, okay, so to fully explain this movement, I actually want to start with something Freddie DeBoer wrote last year in an essay called The Gentrification of Disability. Do you remember this one? I do, yeah. Was this published on his Substack or somewhere else? It was his Substack, and then there was also an interview with Barry Weiss where he talked about it, and we'll, we'll link yeah, to both. Uh, yeah. That was actually a very good interview. They talked about other stuff too. So DeBoer explains how back in the day he worked for his hometown's public school district. I think that's... Con- Connecticut, um, including he did some work in a special education classroom. I'll just read from this. In that class, the special education class, there were two boys who had autism, which resulted in severe academic and social and communicative impairments. One of them was completely nonverbal and had been his entire life. As I understood it, he had never been capable of speaking or reading, could not dress himself, wore sanitary garments, could not go to the bathroom without assistance. He would occasionally screech very loudly without clear cause. I believe these days he would be referred to as having level three autism as defined by the DSM. He needed a lot of help, and though he was unable to complete what might conventionally be called academic work, the school provided him with structure, support, and time during which his mother didn't have to care for him. I met her on several occasions when she came to pick him up after school. She would sometimes talk about the difficulties of raising a disabled child in language that would be frowned on today, but I admired how frank and honest she was. She was really not a fan of the autism awareness community of the time. This was well before the neurodiversity, air quotes, movement and all of its habits. It was all about awareness, raising awareness, 5Ks for awareness, bumper stickers for awareness. That was precisely what angered her the most. She said to me once, what does awareness do for my kid? How does it help me? So then he just talks about how like today this has um, evolved. It's less about awareness, but it's more about what he calls a, a vague quote, a vague positivity uh, that what every disabled person requires is the laurel of strangers condescendingly wishing them the best. So 
this is something you see a lot online and in some activist movements. It's it's largely premised on this idea that the way to help people out who are disabled is to argue that they can basically do whatever non-disabled people can do. If you focus on the negatives or the idea that disabled people really are different from others or can be different and might have some trouble fully participating inside society the same way the rest of us do, you're being pathologizing, or, or at least that's one of the words for it. And I mean, I take it you've you've seen this view online um, applied to both uh, disabled people and mentally ill people, right? Oh, for sure. And there's this other thing, and, and stop me if you're going to get into this, where people opt, opting into the disability label or to the disability community, calling themselves, for instance, neurodivergent, who might not actually have a diagnosis uh, or might not actually have anything like physically or mentally really wrong with them. But there does yeah. seem to be it's, – it's strange. Like there seems to be some – social capital in being disabled, being other. This is, I think, a pretty new phenomenon and maybe in some ways a positive development. If people are opting into this identity, it's like people opting into being gay or queer or whatever. That shows you that stigma against these uh, whatever otherisms has lowered. Nobody opts into being a pedophile, right? <laughs> Not yet. I mean, unless they actually are a pedophile. Not yet. I was supposed to come Not out. until get, MAP gets its unflagged. <laughs> I was supposed to come out as queer yesterday. I forgot again. I keep forgetting. Yeah. One of these days. Tomorrow. Um, yes. So yeah, everything you're saying is true. And and one of the consequences of a lot of this discourse, or maybe one of the causes of it, uh, it goes both ways, is that some of the leading figures in various movements geared at helping people with mental or physical disabilities actually aren't very disabled or mentally ill, relatively speaking. So like within autism advocacy, there are some really well-known self-advocates who might have some noticeable symptoms, but nothing remotely like what Deborah is describing with with this kid. And um, what he and others have pointed Mm -hmm. out, uh, including the academic Amy Lutz in a new book called Chasing the Intact Mind, I wrote about in my newsletter, um, and Freddie DeBoer reviewed it. Uh, we'll, We'll link to both of those. What they've pointed out is that this leaves a lot of people behind. Like Lutz has a adult son with severe autism. And she points out that a lot of the folks with autism who are self advocates and leading the movement, and she points out that a lot of folks like her son have a tremendous amount of difficulty functioning on a day to day level, and they need a lot of external support. And the sort of more photogenic, highly educated, privileged folks who who also have a, autism but like a much less severe version of it, their interests might not be aligned with folks who like need adult daycare and stuff like that. Does that make sense? Yeah, and, and it makes sense in a lot of ways. For one, it's going to be really hard to advocate for yourself or become an activist if you're nonverbal. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think that like there's a version of this like question of who leads a movement in basically any marginalized community. So like, mm-hmm. you know, at one point, Black Lives Matter had stuff on its website or one of the big BLM groups about abolishing the nuclear family. And they do a lot of stuff about how capitalism's bad, just very revolutionary stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what black communities need is more single <laughs> single parent homes. Yeah. And, and I mean, and, and I, we've talked about this endlessly because I think it's a really important sticking point in like progressive politics, like black Americans on average are more conservative on this sort of thing than a lot of white liberals. Like they're not anti-family. They're not anti-capitalism. They have like pretty normy political views on a lot. Wait, of wait, wait, stuff. wait. You're saying that the average black person doesn't want to raise their kids in a polycule with their neighbors <laughs> and their neighbors' metamors? Is that what you're telling me, Jesse? Right. Not that many of them have taken the middle name X is what I'm saying. <laughs> Um, no, it's like, I mean, it's, it's sort of laughable at this point, the way this happens with thing after thing, or like take, take glad, take glad's obsession with the New York times, which we've talked about. 
whether or not the Times frames its coverage of youth gender medicine in exactly the right way, and you and I, I think, both think they've actually done a good job, that has no impact on the day-to-day lives of, for example, a poor trans person who risks getting kicked out of their housing, let alone like the people who are most vulnerable who are like black sex workers. They do not give a shit. I promise you. I am speaking for the oppressed here on this one issue. Right. The oppressed do not care that Azeem Gureshi didn't have a quote from a pro-youth transition person in graph two instead of graph eight. It is a very privileged concern. Right. They are not talking about J.K. Rowling. They are not talking about J.K. Rowling. So I think this is just, this This happens in disability activism, but I think it happens in so many other areas of activism where the folks who have the most time and education and, and verbal ability are able to sort of dominate the discussion. Okay, so what is Cripple Punk? It is a fantastic band name, although people would be protesting outside of your shows if you used it and you weren't in a wheelchair. (laughs) So let's start with a Vice article called Cripple Punk, the Disabled Young People Smashing Ableism. Subheadline, spiked wheelchairs, studs, and cigarettes, C-Punk is about rejecting society's inspiration porn, narrative of physical disability. Uh, Do you want to read the excerpt of that I put in our shared document? Sure. Oh, and this I believe this is written by someone who who is them or herself disabled. And and, and look, we are going to use the word cripple here we're not obviously not using it to denigrate people um there's some words we just don't say i i won't say the n-word like but i still think they used uh mention distinction matters and we're mentioning it so some people will be unhappy about that but we tend to take a liberal view on uh usage questions on this show or mentioning questions i should say anyway read this excerpt this is a primo i don't think anybody listening to this is going to be unhappy about it okay We need to see more disabled people behaving badly. And no, I don't mean blind people littering or wheelchair users shoplifting. I mean, we need to see... Although they should. If everyone else is shoplifting, wheelchair users should shoplift. I mean, we need to see more disabled people behaving like everyone else. We need to see more disabled people smoking, drinking, and sticking up a middle finger. More disabled people who are angry, bitter, and abjectly uninspirational because, frankly, there are a lot of us. So where have we all been hiding? Dive into disability TikTok and you'll quickly come across a certain kind of creator. They're young, disabled, and proud of it. They have a snarky comeback for every ableist comment. They do DIYs on how to pimp your wheelchair. If you put spikes on the handle, strangers won't take it upon themselves to push you. They're not averse to a good old-fashioned thirst trap offering featuring a bedazzled walking stick. Many have piercings and brightly colored hair. Most of them wear badges, studs, and leather. Almost all of them joke about ableds and smashing ableism. Welcome to Cripple Punk. Dude, this reminds me, it turns out uh, my uncle, I didn't realize this at the time, but he was he was Cripple Punk. I had a, an uncle who was born with spina bifida, severely disabled. Damn. And he uh, he loved going to strip clubs and he sued his local strip club so that he could get wheelchair access. That, dude, that. He's like, fucking hero. You need, that should be your book. Just that lawsuit yeah. and how it ties into your family history and why you're all so weird. That would be such a good book. <laughs> Do you know if he won? Oh, I think he did, yeah. This was in New York in probably the 70s. There's like punitive damages. They have to give him 25 lap dances for free. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So the argument is basically that people are putting too shiny a face on disability. It's too inspirational. So we're going to respond to that by being punk. Fuck you. Yeah. Yeah. We are not inspirational, bitch. Yes. And in this, you can see both, I think, a response to a very real thing, to the gentrification of disability. But even in that thing you just wrote, it's like that question of your level of privilege and your relative level of problem. So like, I'm sure if you're disabled and someone starts pushing your wheelchair without your permission, that's probably unpleasant. But yeah. <laughs> and the, the hierarchy of problems that disabled people face in America, it's, it's a microaggression, right? Can I make an, a confession? Did you do that? I did do this. So this was maybe 
five, six, seven years ago. I was living in Seattle and I was on a bus. There was a, I shouldn't have been on the bus in an ice storm, but there was a crazy ice storm in Seattle. And there was a woman on the bus as well. She got off the bus and Seattle's a very, very hilly city. So for people who live in Seattle, this was on uh, on like Union and Madison, uh, up by the co-op, very hilly area. And this woman in the wheelchair, she got off the bus. The bus driver got out and like pushed her a little bit. She started to slide back. He got back on the bus and I was like, oh my fucking God, this woman's going to slide into the road. I jumped off the bus and I grabbed her wheelchair and she fucking screamed at me. And that was the last time I will ever do that. Oh, you thought she was like actually in danger of sliding down a hill? Oh, she was in danger. She slid down the hill. Oh, so you were trying to help by being <laughs> a- but you're also <laughs> able. You're trying, trying to help, help with ableism, which is no help at all. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't trying to just like take her for a spin for funsies. No, she was literally, high, it was like a very, very icy day. She was literally sliding down a hill, but she was, you know, I didn't ask her permission and I will never do that again. That woman's- You can slide down the hill, slide into traffic. I'm not, I'm not touching the wheelchair again. That woman's name, Brianna Wu. <laughs> oh, dude, she's <laughs> in it today. I was going to say, that was why, it was a very random reference, but just the, uh, I don't know, maybe we'll have to talk about the Brianna Wu leak. The, the fact that there's something that- <laughs> The phrase the Brianna Wu leaks exists <laughs> that we've gone from like the Pentagon Papers to the Brianna <laughs> Wu leaks. Oh, but what the fuck happened to our society? All right. That's all you get to hear the rest of the episode and find out exactly why merds are the turfs of the cripple punk world. Join us at blockedandreported.org. Thanks for listening. And we will be back with a free episode soon.